Hope you have your Bibles this morning. It's one of the things we do. That's crazy. We read our Bibles in church. It's, it's nuts. Uh, if you don't have your paper Bible, there's some in the back. Uh, those are a gift to you. If you want one, you need one, take one. Uh, write your name in it. Take it with you. Read it at home. If you have your uh, mobile device, you can download the Version app and follow along in my notes there in the app if you have that. When we read the Bible, we encounter supernatural events. We encounter miracles, not just the suspension of natural law, but the direct intervention of God's power into time and space. I mean, things like axe heads floating on the water, donkeys talking, sicknesses being healed, angels appearing, virgins giving birth, the dead are raised, right? These are the things that scripture says have happened in history. And when we read the Bible and we take it for what it is, God's word, as it comes to us, we're, ex- we're, we're asked to accept the miraculous. We're asked to take that and believe it and accept it. But is it, is it possible in our uh, enlightened 21st century world to believe in miracles? The, the philosopher David Hume did not think so. David Hume believed that miracles were so improbable that it was actually impossible to believe them. And in fact, here are the criteria he put forth as a philosopher for for him to believe something was miraculous. It would require the testimony of people of such great learning that they could not possibly be deceived. It would require such people of such good character that they could not possibly be deceitful and of such high reputation that if they lost face and if we're found to be deceitful, it would be overwhelming and devastating to them personally. And, and further, he required that the miracle performed publicly be done in a, in a celebrated part of the world that any detection of fraud would be easily uncovered. Those were his criteria. And in Hume's view, these criteria would never be satisfied. He even admitted that there were miracles that occurred in France, which he knew of, which were, and this is a quote, immediately proved upon the spot before judges of unquestionable integrity, attested to by witnesses of credit and distinction in a learned age and in the most reliable places in the world. And, and so you think that, that would seem to meet his criteria, right? But still he rejected the miracles on the grounds of the absolute impossibility of the miraculous. In short, here's his, his attitude was when confronted with the reality of something that he did not want to believe, despite the fact that it met his criteria, he refused to believe it. It was a decision of the will. He refused to believe. In short, um, there's a place in the heart, in the human heart, that goes beyond evidence to to the will. And it's not enough to know. It's a place where we have to decide whether or not we're going to accept the reality in front of us, right? Uh, in, in contrast to that, pastor and author Larry Osborne says that faith is trusting God enough to obey even when you're not sure it's going to work out in the short run. We know it's going to work out in the long run. We know we're going to be with Jesus forever in heaven, but it's, it's trusting God enough in that moment to go ahead and step out in obedience even if you're not sure this is going to work out in the short run, even if the, all the circumstances aren't going to come right into order like I want them to. That's faith. That's faith. And you've heard the phrase, seeing is believing, right? Well, a high school teacher was telling her class about evolution. She was telling her class uh, the way everything had come to be in the world, which clearly proves that God doesn't exist. And she said to her class, look out the window, class. Can you see God? Where is he? Who can see God? Can any of you see God? No? And the kids shook their heads. 
She said, well, look around the classroom. You can't see God, can you? And the kids shook their heads. And she said she was very sure she had won her audience over. But one girl raised her hand very respectfully in the back of the class. And she said, Miss Smith, just because we can't see something doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. We could do brain surgery. We can investigate the parts of your brain and we could do a CAT scan and see the patterns in your head, but we can't prove that you had a single thought today because we can't see your thoughts. By your own logic, your thoughts don't exist. Now, I'm not sure how that student fared in that class, if she got an A or if she failed, but I I think that's it. Seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. Believing is is seeing. But before we get too far, I want to just stop and just, just a word about angels. Because the text this morning in Luke, in his gospel in chapter one, deals with angels. And the word angel in the Greek, angelos, it means messenger. These are the creatures in the heavenly realm that God sends as his messengers that accomplish his will and, and do his will in the world that we can't see. Did you know, even right now, in this moment, in this room, there are angelic beings. Is that, is that weird to anybody else? Does it just freak you out? That they are in this room with us right now. In fact, the word of God says they watch the church. There's this issue of authority in the church and they, they learn from what we're doing in obedience to Christ. It's crazy, right? And so there are angels in the room and, and these messengers of God, um, this one in particular that we'll talk about this morning, his name is Gabriel. And he appears to three different people in the Bible. He appears to Daniel in the book of Daniel. He appears to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And he appears to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. And in every case, we're told that it's distressing. When he appears, it's distressing. Um, All through the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord will appear to people. and, And then consistently, you see this in the text. The very next words out of the angel's mouth are, get up, don't be afraid, Do you know why that's the consistent message of the angel of the Lord? Because he's terrifying. He's terrifying, glorious, radiant, this immensely powerful being that God has made. There's this messenger. Whenever the angel of the Lord or whenever any angel materializes, it's so off-putting and intimidating and frightening to humanity that we fall down as though dead. And the angel has to say, get up, get up. Or he'll say to John, right, in in the revelation of Jesus at the last book of the Bible, he'll say, get up, don't don't worship me. I'm an angel. I'm a servant of God. Just like you, get get up. Stop that. You're going to get us both in trouble, right? (laughs) Stop. Because they're glorious. Like if in your mind you have puny, silly, fat baby angels with cupid bows and little wings flitting around, those are not angels. That's not angels, There are only glorious and majestic things in the realm of God. And so two of these three appearances of Gabriel happen in Luke's gospel. Now, Luke's gospel, one of the four gospel accounts in the Bible, compiled and written down by a Gentile doctor named Luke. Uh, Luke relied heavily on the eyewitness testimony of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and to others to a lesser extent. But Luke is a physician, and he's very focused on Jesus' humanity and what Jesus felt and what Jesus experienced as a fully human man. And there's this beautiful symmetry to Luke's gospel 
um, his account of the coming of the Messiah into the world. Luke is the only one of the four gospel accounts that uh, tells, uh, foretells the birth of John the Baptist. Uh, Luke begins with the announcement to his father, Zechariah, and then he comes uh, to the announcement of Jesus' birth to his mother, Mary. And, and then in chapter one, there's a connection made between the two because Mary goes to see Elizabeth and spend some time at her house. And you can imagine for Mary, who's a young maiden, a virgin in her community, which is very religiously strict, that suddenly finding herself pregnant, like to leave town for a while and go spend some time with some relatives somewhere else is a very wise thing probably for her to do. And so she, she leaves town. And as you read the text, Mary sings a song of praise uh, while she's with Elizabeth. Zachariah sings a song of praise after the birth of John. The angels sing a song of praise at the birth of Jesus. And there's this clear pattern that we're meant to see in Luke's gospel. The announcement of John, the announcement of Jesus. The birth of John, the birth of Jesus and the respective moms spending time together links those two. And so, man, as you, as you think about these events and the angels appearing and disappearing, you may, you may find yourself thinking that all the special treatment and the astounding, miraculous interaction between God and man is this incredible once-in-a-lifetime event. And I just want to say to you this morning, if that's what you're thinking, you're absolutely wrong. It's not a once-in-a-lifetime event. It's a once-in-forever event. It's a once and forever event. Never had anything like this happen before and nothing like it will ever happen again. The insertion of the Son of God into time and space and human history that he might be a man and go to the cross for us is the most unique event in, in forever. In forever. And not once in a lifetime, but once in a forever event. So let's go to the text this morning. Uh, Luke chapter one. We're gonna start in verse five. And we're just going to read a little bit. I'm going to expound on it. Uh, it's such a long piece of text this morning. So let's, let's go uh, to chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God. That's super important. They walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. That's important because the assumption was in first century Judaism, if you were barren and had no children, God was upset with you. He doesn't like you. And here Luke takes great pain to say they were righteous before God. They obeyed him. Right? It wasn't a matter of displeasure. It wasn't a matter of sin. It just was for God's purposes. Right Now, while he was serving, verse 8, as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple and burn incense. That was maybe a once-in-a-lifetime event if you were a priest, to go into the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the holy place, and to burn incense. He's been selected to do that. Verse 10, and the whole multitude of the people praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled. I love the understatements, right? He was troubled. Yeah. When he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. You see that phrase? That's there for a reason, right? Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. 
and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how can I know this? I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them, but he remained mute. And, and then when his time of service was ended, he went home. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. Let's just stop for a second. If Zechariah is going to evaluate this encounter with an angel based on his own life experience, he's probably going to think, like you and I would, that old women don't have babies because, well, he doesn't know any who have, right? But to his folly, he surely would have been familiar with the story of Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, and how God gave him a child of promise in his old age. And scripture even says that both he and Sarah were well advanced in years. They, they laugh when Jesus tells them they're going to have a baby. She's like, yeah, right. Uh, the parts ain't working like that, right? And, and he, they laugh about it. And God says, so, so Zechariah would have known this. Um, he seems quite aware that he's speaking with an angel, a real entity, that this is not his imagination. It's not a hallucination. And to his credit, he does not doubt that he's had a very real and powerful experience with the one true and living God. And so this episode speaks to God's omniscience. Uh, omni is the Latin prefix that means all, and science in Latin means knowledge. So omniscience is God's all-knowingness. He knows everything, right? So this, this speaks to God's omniscience, and it speaks to God's power and his will, because God is the one who's at work in this situation. The Bible's not presenting an unusual coincidence that God just happens upon us says, I I think I could work that to my will. I think I could take advantage of that unusual coincidence. That's not what's happening. These are purposed and used by him to bring about salvation for all of humanity. And so through the angel Gabriel, God is predicting and telling what's going to happen before it takes place. That's a feature that's unique to the Bible. Not that other religious texts don't uh, attempt to prophesy or tell the future, but that the Bible has a 100% track record when it comes to prophecy. In fact, let me just let me invite you to imagine a word picture with me. There, there are over 300 specific prophecies in the Old Testament about the first coming of Messiah into the world. Now, we're talking about things that a lot of them, you, if, you, if you set out to say, I want to be the person who does all those, you couldn't because you can't pick where you're born. This is some of these things that you just don't have any control over. So over 300 exacting prophecies about Messiah, for one person, for one person to get just, excuse me, just eight of those correct 
in their lifetime. Here's the stat. Here's the number. It's one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, that, that may not mean anything to some of you, so let me give you the word picture to help you understand how vastly improbable so as to be impossible for one person to get just eight, not the 300, just eight, one in 10 to the 17th power. Um, it would be like you take a quarter out of your pocket and you take a red Sharpie and you put an X on one side of the quarter and now you blindfold yourself and you're gonna throw the quarter as hard as you can way out into a bucket the size of Texas that's three feet deep. So bucket about this deep, the size of Texas. And it's filled with quarters. And you throw your quarter way out there and then somebody really big and strong, God, shakes the bucket violently for a couple of minutes. Shakes all those quarters up. Now on your first attempt, blindfolded, you will walk out into the bucket and you will pick up your quarter with the red X on one side. That's about the same odds as one person fulfilling just eight of those prophecies. And Jesus didn't just fulfill eight. He fulfilled all 300 plus perfectly. Perfectly. Here's the kicker. For every one prophecy in the Old Testament about the first coming of Messiah, there are eight times as many about the second coming of Messiah. It is the most sure event in human history that has yet to take place. And Messiah is coming again. He's coming again. But we haven't gotten even to the first coming in the text, so let's keep reading. Luke chapter one, verse 26. I I, I like to chase rabbit trails on prophecy stuff, so. Verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, The Lord is with you. And she was greatly troubled at that saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the most high will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be unto me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now these these are humanly impossible births. You understand that? Elizabeth is old and barren. This would have been a source of shame in her culture, even though she's married to a priest. And that, that prevailing view of her barrenness was that God was displeased with the woman or with the couple. She's well past the age of bearing children, and yet God graciously uses her to bring about part of his plan because nothing's too difficult for him. And then Mary's clear acceptance of the power and mercy of God, her embrace of submission to his authority, allows her to respond with profound joy. She's filled with joy. Now, her gratitude, her submission makes her an ideal conduit of grace into the world. 
Do you, do you see how that positioning, that posturing of being submitted and, and grateful and filled with joy makes her a conduit of God's grace? And though none of you are ever going to give birth to the Messiah, right? This is where you nod vigorously. You're not going to give birth to Messiah, especially you guys. I don't care what the culture says. The precedent being set here for us as followers of Jesus is that our submission to God, our submission, our joy in him, our contentment and our gratitude make us conduits of grace into the world. When we're positioned in the same attitude as Mary, that his grace flows through us into the world. It's a beautiful picture. And then in verse 39, uh, Mary goes and visits Elizabeth. Look at the text. It says, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah and, and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, I love this, the baby leaped in her womb. This is going to be a soccer player, right? It just leaped. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry. She said, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And, and why has this been even granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came into my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And then there's, if you're reading in your Bible, there's this whole section called the Magnificat, where Mary sings a song of praise to God. Magnificat's a Latin term for uh, magnify the Lord, and, and so it's, it goes back to the Latin text. It's kind of the tradition of what we call the song. But skip down to uh, verse 57, chapter 157. And, and this is the, the birth of John the Baptist. And, and now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said, none of your relatives are called by that name. And they made signs to the father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a tablet, and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately, his mouth was open and his tongue loosened and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came upon all the neighbors. And all these things were talked about through the whole hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Mary exemplifies a spirit of earnest longing to know more of God's wisdom and his ways. And even if you're more like Zechariah here in the text, God is so good and he's so patient. And even though Zechariah got struck mute for his unbelief, um, Zechariah obeyed God and, and he, he names the child John just as the angel told him to. And when John was born, he receives back his voice and he praises God and he prophesies in the Holy Spirit. And so Zechariah was not disobedient or unfaithful. Zechariah is just a slow learner. He just takes a little bit more time to get it. And so I want to just take a minute to compare and contrast these two responses to the message. Both Jesus and John the Baptist there are some things that are the same here. Both are announced in advance by the angel Gabriel. Both births are miraculous and unnatural. And in both cases, the angel tells them what the name of the child will be. So those are the similarities, but here are the contrasts. John was born to an older, sterile mother, but Jesus was born to a young virgin. John's name means 
God is salvation. God, excuse me, God is gracious. Jesus' name means savior or salvation. John was to prepare the way of the Lord. And Jesus is the Lord who reigns forever and ever. And working through this helps us wrestle with some very important truths. It's God who's uniquely at work in the birth of these two lives. Now, Psalm, Psalm 139 tells us that God is at work in the unfolding of every life in the womb. And that's one of the important reasons why we believe that life is sacred from conception. He's involved in that process. But these two instances are really quite unique. The earthly life of the savior of mankind has its origin and its direction from the God of the universe. And that God has given to us this gospel and three other gospel accounts of eyewitnesses. And that's a marvelous grace to us. Think about this. Luke, right, he he says in his introduction, he's writing to uh, a a man named Theophilus who's a Roman official. and, And he's faced with this dilemma. How is this... Uh, how is this man going to believe that this poor itinerant Jewish rabbi who was executed as a common criminal is really the son of God? How is he going to believe this? That's incredibly hard for Theophilus to accept. And I'm not suggesting that Luke or any other human author of scripture would embellish or add to their story so as to try to convince people of the supernatural nature of Jesus. I'm simply saying that starting at the beginning, Luke shows that the Messiah and his forerunner are not ordinary men. They're not ordinary men. God had personally ordained and ordered their births and the events that surrounded them. And it drives home the truth that Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. Because even JB's going to appear on the scene early in Matthew's gospel. And one of the first things he's going to say is, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal straps of Jesus. I mean, there's no comparison going on here. We're not jockeying for first place. I, he, he must increase and I must decrease, right? So John gets it. From the very beginning, Jesus is greater. Jesus is more. He's more than. And even even Gabriel says, he will be great and be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. But there's a contrast that we didn't unpack. And it's the one that I think applies to us most this Christmas. It's the difference between the way that Zechariah responded to the angel and the way that Mary responded to the angel. How will I know this? I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered, hear the indignation, right? Hear, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and and, and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah did not believe God's message, God's word through Gabriel. When God spoke kindness and mercy and grace into his life, he doubted. He wavered in unbelief. And it's funny, too, because you can pick up, if you choose to hear it, in Elizabeth's words to Mary when she comes to visit, listen to what she says. She says, blessed are you among women, right? Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has it even been granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came into my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And then this sentence, like you can read it this way, you don't have to, but, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Because my guy didn't, right? You could read it that way. Um, But Mary, on the other hand, responded in faith to the word of the Lord brought by Gabriel. And Mary's question in that moment is, how will this be? 
be? How will these things be? Zechariah's question was, how can I know? Mary asked for an explanation of the miracle that's been announced to her, and Zechariah is asking for more evidence. See, Mary says she doesn't understand how this is going to come about, how it's all going to work, and Zechariah says he's not sure that it will. And Mary's response is humble, humble confusion. <laughs> and it comes from, uh, Gabriel responds with a partial explanation. Zechariah just receives a rebuke and is made mute for nine months. So humility is the key factor here that makes all the difference. You know, uh, 1 Peter 5.5, 5, James 4.6, both are quoting the book of Proverbs when they tell us that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so this Christmas, here's the takeaway for you. Be like Mary. Be like Mary. When the word of the Lord comes to you, when Jesus comes to you, he steps into your context, and when the gospel's presented to you again and again and the word of the Lord comes to you, be like Mary. Don't be like Zechariah. God is saying through his word this morning, trust me, trust me. I'm the one who does the impossible. I'm the one who makes the barren fertile and the virgin to give birth. I'm the God who, who does the impossible. See, see, God doesn't mind your confusion. He's not intimidated by your confusion. He, he doesn't even mind our wonderings and our questions as to how these things will come about. But when we need more proof than we've already been given or we demand more evidence, we're not trusting God. We're not trusting God. We're not believing him or taking him at his word. And I would just say to you this morning that the word of the Lord has come to you. The word of the Lord has come to you, even this very hour, sitting under the preaching, of, of, under the sound of my voice, the word of the Lord has come to you. And for some of you, here's the application point, right? Because some of you are trusting God for something right now, or there's some hardship in your life, or some obstacle that's in your way, and God is saying through his word, I'm bigger and stronger and greater than anything that opposes you. Trust me. Rest in me. And for some of you here this morning, the word of the Lord has come to you to confront you with the reality of Jesus and his gospel to bring about your salvation for the first time. And so God is speaking, I am the one who saves. I'm the source of life. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And the question you have to wrestle with is, will you believe him today? Will you take him at his word? You don't have to understand all the nuances of how it's all going to work out. You just have to believe in faith. Believe him and take him at his word. And remember what Gabriel said with God. Nothing is impossible. God's grace is free. It's available to each one of us today, right this very instant. And I just want to remind us again that he delights to freely pour it out across the spectrum of humanity. God doesn't show favoritism. He doesn't show favoritism. It's available to all. Only believe. Put your faith in him. Trust him. Take him at his word. I love what C.S. Lewis said in the book that he wrote, A Grief Observed. He said, You never really know how much you believe a thing until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life or death. He says, it's easy to say you believe a rope to be a strong rope as long as you only merely use it to bind up boxes. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover just how much you really trusted it? To some of you, the word of God is a convenient companion. 
that you keep close by, but it's like the rope that you tie things up with. It, it, you haven't put the full weight of your whole life down on it yet. And I'm inviting you to do that this morning at Christmas in 2018 to just dangle over the precipice and put your full weight on the rope. Faith is, is an action. It's not just the right belief, right? There's not an entity in the whole universe apart from God that knows more scripture than Lucifer, right? He doesn't have faith. But to know it and then to trust it. I had a mentor and Jen and I met in that college group I was telling you about earlier, and, and, and Bob Dukes was the guy over that college group, and he used to do this all the time. He would say, faith is not just knowing that this chair will hold my weight, and he'd pull the chair over, and he'd stand up on the chair, and he'd tower over the whole room and say, faith is, st- is putting your weight down on the chair, right? And every time he did that, which was probably every other week, we were secretly going, yeah, kind of hope the chair breaks, you know, it just it would be really funny. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not even going to attempt to use one of these elementary school chairs to do the same thing because it would just collapse under me. I know that it would, but this is the reality of faith. It's not just knowing the right information. It's putting your weight down on it, right? And so C.S. Lewis says, you're hanging from that rope over the, over the precipice, wouldn't you then, when you put all your weight on it, then really discover just how much you trusted it. Faith is the right and pleasing response to God's promises and his word. And the word of the Lord has come to you even this very hour. Uh, believe him. Believe him. Take him at his word today. Merry Christmas. Lord Jesus, would you... Just apply that to us. It's the beauty of what your spirit does in the church is that uh, in a room full of even five to ten people, there are five to ten different applications of what you want to do in the lives of your people. And we just trust you right now, Holy Spirit, to apply the truth of your word to us, that we would look at the comparison and the contrast between uh, Mary's response and Zechariah's response to the message of Gabriel, the word of the Lord, and we would, uh, we would take that away into our Christmas celebration. We take that away into our lives as we walk with you in these days. And we want to be people who respond in faith, even if we don't understand, even if we don't have it all figured out and we don't know every nuance of how it's going to work, we would trust you and believe you and walk in faith, not in fear, but in faith. God, would you do that for us, your people? We ask in Jesus' name.